Well, as we turn back to Hebrews chapter 6, being reminded that we're getting our arms wrapped around what is the what is the anchor of our faith? Again, in the hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, we're, we're reminded, O death, where is thy sting? There's no longer the sting of death. The, the victory has been won. The battle has been won. And that's, that's the sad part of, of life, is that even though God had this amazing plan. Even though Christ died on the cross to pay for the sins of all the world, all the world doesn't accept Him. All the world, in fact, um, has the opportunity to reject Him. And unfortunately, we see that. We, We see mass rejection. And so we're we wrestle then with this idea of, well, still, how is one saved? Because I see sin all around me, not only in the world, I see all around me in my Christian community. I see sin all around me in me. Um, and so as we try to get our arms wrapped around that, we, we want to have assurance. We want to have confidence. We, we want to have great hope. And so Hebrews 6 reminds us that you can have hope. You can have confidence. You just need to understand where to place that hope and confidence. And that hope and confidence is placed that the anchor of our soul is placed in Christ. So that's a great picture uh, and, and a great reason why we would want to come to Hebrews 6 and, and study it. And once again, we, we, we see this great example of, of in the Bible... We, we have this meta-narrative, this, this big picture, you know, who is God, who is mankind, and what is the relationship between a holy, righteous God who has rules with sinful man who breaks them, and how is God going to fix this and redeem mankind? And so we see this story of redemption throughout the scriptures, but intertwined in that, we... We see a lot of subplots. But don't ever forget, the subplots still tie into the main plot, right? And this is where we have to be careful. And as Hebrews 6 warns us, be careful about clinging to elementary teaching. Uh, be careful about, you know, getting wrangled in in unnecessary, you know, theological disputes. Instead, we're, we're supposed to be mature. Well, what is maturity and what then are the key things that we want to anchor to? And so what we see are side stories and backstories and even some rabbit trails, but, but God always come, comes back. And we see that here in, in Hebrews 6, because remember, we're studying the book of Hebrews and the book of Hebrews is trying to make a point. And that point is Christ is better than what? Than everything. Christ is better than the law. Christ is, is better than a priest. Christ is better than a preacher. Christ is better than, than everything. And so systematically, Hebrews starts pulling out, okay, well, here, here's a subplot, okay? So we don't get fixated on characters like Melchizedek, right? Um, that, that, that's a, a subplot to the story. And there's some 
interesting things to conjecture and, and, and think about and consider. But let's not lose sight of, of the big picture of who Christ is. And so today as we get our arms wrapped around this, this concept of anchor of the soul, um, first we have to ask ourselves, well, okay, do, do we really understand what an anchor is? It's like, well, of course we do. We're, we're not imbeciles, right? Well, but remember that the scripture uses illustration and it speaks specifically to people. Usually we're talking about farming and, you know, fishermen and, and things like that. Why? Because we really want you to have your arms fully wrapped around this concept so that you get it. So when we talk about an anchor and how valuable an anchor is, I mean... How many of us on a regular basis use an anchor and, and really understand the dynamics of how this little metal piece holds the whole boat? And so what is the anchor? Well, the anchor is that, that reliable support that holds, holds you firm in place. And so you think of a ship, right? Uh, an anchor is, is placed down. Why? So you don't drift away. You don't float off. There's, there's tides and there's currents. And, um, and so you don't want to be, you know, pulled away. And so this anchor is going to keep you in place. We also use anchors in a couple other different ways. We, we call the, the best news anchor, the anchor, right? The anchor man. You got the weatherman, you got the sports guy. And then you have like the anchor man. He's the, the, the lead dog or, you know, she's the lead dog. And uh, they're the ones that are, are the key voice, the superior to others, the, the head. And then we see malls, right? What do you call the, 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 the key store in the mall? It's the, the anchor store. So in the anchor store, if you go down to South Center and it's like, well, which one's the anchor store? Is it, you know, the, the, the shaving cream store, you know, uh, is it the Gap? No, it's Nordstrom. Nordstrom's the biggest, the best. It's got, it's got the name. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to be stable. You can have confidence in this mall, the type of mall it's going to be versus a mall with the anchor store of Kmart in the dollar store, right? Now, here's the thing. These aren't bad things, right? I mean, Kmart's not bad. The dollar store's not bad. Um, but it's not the best. It's not better. Then we look at the soul. What is the soul? The soul is that, that inner being. It, it's your essence. It's, it's the spiritual, immaterial part of your body. It's... It's really who you are. And this is, again, I, I, I want us to, to not just gloss through this, but, but meditate on it and think about it. But we are not this. Okay, we're, we're spiritual beings. We were not designed to, to live here and die here and that's it. This is a temporary holding place. And so our soul is what we should be a one concerned about, which means our eternity, which means our spirit. And so when we look at something like our hope and, and what is the anchor of our soul? Well, 
that 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 should drive our our passion to to want to know what that is so that you have it the anchor of our soul is not cash right the anchor of your soul is not is not your job the anchor of your soul is is not anything here so why do we spend so much time worrying about this stuff like we do well because we allow other things to be many anchors and those things become our hope and our confidence we, we were even talking a little bit before church about things like insurance right is your great hope in your insurance policy because that'd be pretty pathetic right if your great hope was in your bank account and your you know your roth ira you know your your retirement plan um because none of those policies last beyond eternity Right. So today we're going to evaluate the anchor of the soul by understanding two key features in, in Hebrews 6. The first one is a call to maturity. We are called to maturity. The second feature is God's unchangeable promises. And so remember, what did we learn last week? Because one of the key confusions here uh, when, when we read the first few verses, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ... Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. The Christ, the Messiah, the God King. Okay? So, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings, laying on the, of the hands, and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and them have and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So if you weren't here last week, remember last week we we dove into that big question. Can you lose your salvation? Can you be a Christian and then not be a Christian? And as we did our, our little Bible search and scrolled through, we learned, well, first you have to understand what is Christianity. If Christianity is marked by a belief in God, Right, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, and whoever shall believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We saw the vehicle of that, which was Ephesians two eight nine. For by grace you're saved through faith, not of your own. It's it's a free gift from God, right? And then we even see in, in Romans uh, ten nine. So if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died, buried, and rose again, then you shall be saved. So these are the markings then of, of, of genuine Christianity. So it's not by works. It's not by, by any amazing act that you do. It's all God-driven. It's, it's confession-driven. It's belief-driven. Well, that's kind of the hard part because it's, it's hard for us to understand and see what you really believe, Right? So first of all, this is not something that we can ever do, should ever do, which is to really evaluate and to judge somebody's genuine belief. Because you just don't know. 
Now there's indicators. There's, there's external fruit, and we'll get to that. And so what we learned about genuine Christianity is a Christian is then a new creation, right? The idea of being born again. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation. A Christian is redeemed. 1 Peter 1.18-19, that means you're already purchased by blood. So if you're purchased by blood, by Christ, it'd be pretty hard to be unpurchased since he's the one purchasing, right? We're justified, Romans 5.1. Again, we're justified through faith by Christ. So it's our faith in Christ that we're justified. He's the judge who gives the justification. So once that's given, why would he turn back on that? The other one was a Christian is promised. There's a promise of eternal life. We saw that in John 3.16. A beautiful illustration is a Christian is marked by God and sealed, sealed by the Spirit, Ephesians 1. We are, we are then that, that signet ring, right, that we talked about with, that would seal your fate. And, and again, that signet ring was equivalent to a, a contract a signed signature, a validation. And so it's Christ's insignia that's, that's sealing your fate. Nothing you do, but he's done that. Christians guaranteed glorifications, Roman uh, glorification, Romans 8, 9. We're, we're predestined, we're called, we're justified, we're glorified by him. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. So what separates us, what pulls us apart from from the grip that Christ has on us? Nothing. Nothing can pull you away from that grip that Christ has. So a genuine Christian cannot lose his salvation. So with that being kind of the the the, the foundation, we, we take a closer look at the key features of the anchor of our soul. Um, and the first one is a call to maturity. So the first three verses, again, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. We're gonna, we're gonna strive forward. We're gonna, we're gonna grow up. Okay, we're gonna get better. Well, how? Well, one is by not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now notice we're, we're entering into one of these little mini laundry lists. Okay? So we, we see this a lot in the scriptures where like five things are thrown out, right? Boom, 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 boom. The idea here is to not actually stop and overanalyze uh, these next statements. The whole point here is to kind of briefly gloss over and say this isn't the mature part there's something else so we press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards god of instruction about washings laying on of the hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and this we shall do if god permits For in those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, 
and them having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So, quickly remember our 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 study here is trying to get our arms wrapped around what is the key anchor of the soul. Well, the the key anchor of the soul, the key to mature Christianity isn't found in getting too caught up in some of these little side things like like washings. See, these these ceremonial washings that they had in the Old Testament, okay, you used to have to have all these washings um, before you would go to, to, let's say, the Day of Atonement, right? Your spiritual sacrifices. You had all these different types of ceremonial washings. And then you come in the New Testament and now you have baptism. And so what's happening here in the early churches, now there's like this confusion of, okay, well, which washings are more important than the other washings? It's like, we're not getting caught up in that stuff. Okay, that that's spiritually immature. Okay, well, what about laying of the hands you know and, and the laying of the hands this isn't as what we think of as a as a spiritual sign of healing in the new testament but laying of the hands with this was the symbolic identification right before you would make a sacrifice for your sin there'd be like a laying of the hands on you which then kind of transferred into that animal it was the is the process of that substitution death so there was arguments about that because, well, we used to do it with the animals. Now you're saying it's Jesus. And so uh, there was like this confusion of this symbolic gesture of the laying of the hands. Uh, the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees and Sadducees uh, argued about this nonstop. About whether or not there was a legitimate resurrection of the dead. And so what's happening is we're being called here to to remove ourselves from kind of the, the basic teachings of Christ. And like I mentioned last week, to then understand the reality of salvation, the reality of the gospel. When we saw this in Galatians, we see this in Romans, now we're seeing it again here in Hebrews, that when, when God talks about maturity, we tend to think like like human beings, right? Uh, maturity means having a PhD. Maturity means, you know, filling our head with all kinds of knowledge and reading tons and tons and tons of books of about, you know, like a, a book, you know, a stack of books this big about, you know, a guy named Melchizedek. When literally we have like, you know, five sentences about him. Christ then says, no, get away from that stuff. I want to turn you back to you understanding what salvation is. And so here's the example. Hey, we have a problem. We have people who are partaking. Do you, do you guys understand this? That there's people who are partaking. There's people who have been enlightened. They're sitting in church. They've been partaking. They've been enlightened. They've tasted. They have tasted the gospel. And yet, they're not walking as a true believer. Now, that's serious. Washing of the hands and stuff, okay, that's interesting. But you know what's serious? Whether or not we're saved. How we're saved. 
can we have confidence in that? that? That's a serious issue. We know, we learned last week, look, we have uh, people who have fallen away. Right? In Matthew 18, God says, you're going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, oh yeah, I know who you are. It just wasn't good enough. No, I, 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 who are you? Now, these are people who are saying, I... I I called on your name. I, 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 I raised people from the dead. I performed miracles. And you think that has something to do with your salvation. You don't know me. I don't know you. We have no relationship. There's a problem. We saw Judas. Judas broke bread with Jesus. He was a partaker. He was enlightened. He tasted. He rejected Christ. We see in John 12 that people will hear and yet not believe. What is belief? Well, we'll see elements of that. James, James 2.19. This is one, one verse that blows my mind away. You guys do understand that the demons know who Jesus is. They shudder in fear. That does not bring them to any kind of repentance that we're told of. So... Yeah, we know you're Jesus. We know you're God's son. That doesn't mean we're going to follow you. <laughs> Think about that for a second. That's frightening. That means that you as a human have the same capacity to fully reject Christ. Even though you may know for fact, for fact, that he is the son of God. When Jesus comes back, people are going to see him coming out of the sky on the, cloud, on, on the charger, the white charger. Heaven's going to open up. It's going to be crazy. What's the response going to be? Well, for some to fall on their knees and worship, for others to pray that a, a, a cave would, or a mountain would fall on their head and kill them. They would rather that happen than follow Jesus. So, we see here that there's this this point of rejection, point of rejection. Then one of the saddest verses, verse six, and then having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, I hope that we have a genuine concern for the lost. I hope we have a passion for those who don't know Jesus. I hope we have a passion for those who, who sit in church who proclaim Christ, and yet, boy, they don't show a lot of fruit. I, I hope we still have a heart of compassion and grace and mercy. Why? Because that's how God is. Because that's how Jesus is. And you're called to follow him. You're not called to follow some religious holy man who is so arrogant and conceited and prideful that he doesn't really want people saved. In fact, he would rather have them damned. We saw that in the Pharisees, right? Unfortunately, we even see that um, today as well from the pulpit. But no, we are called to have this, this heart of compassion. And when we come to this verse and we say, wait a minute, there's going to be some that are going to fall away and it's impossible, impossible for them to come back. Again, we have to stop and take a deep breath here and say, okay, so what is being said? This is what we know is not being said. We know that you can't be a Christian and then after being sealed as a Christian, fall away. So this is t 
talking about people who are around the Christian table, but, but they're not Christians. Okay. So, because a believer can't lose his salvation, you're saying that people who have tasted, partaken, and even been enlightened can then come to a point where there's a point of no return? Yes. Now, I don't know what that line is, and I've probably said this a thousand times, that th this line of sin that, you know, we cross and it's past the point of no return, I have no idea what that is. I know that God is long-suffering and crazy patient with sinful man. We see example after example after example individually in the Bible, and it, as a, this picture in this nation of Israel in the Bible. So God is most merciful, most loving, most compassionate, has, has provided the opportunity for all the world to be saved. So why isn't all the world saved? Well, to, because of apostasy. People who abandon and denounce and turn away from God and in their heart of hearts, They've clenched the fist and they do not want it. It's the Judas thing. They don't want it. They've seen it. They've tasted it. They're rejecting it. So then here's the example. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it. It's this picture again. You've got your, 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 your land, the same sun, the same rain, falls on my land as it does your land, right? The ground, it drinks it up, brings forth vegetation. It's useful to those for the sake of it. It is also tilled and it receives a blessing from God. It, it reaps a harvest. It sprouts fruit. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, luscious crop. Verse 8, but, but. Why is there a curse for hell? If it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Again, it rejects the rain. The picture here, here is that there is an opportunity to reject Christ and at that point, that's that, that, that point of no return. At that point, Christ then deems it worthless and worthy to be burned. That's, that's God's call. That's not your call. I don't care what you see. I don't care what kind of sin you've seen accumulated in somebody. That's never our call because we, we can't judge the heart. We have no idea what's going on there. But God does. And again, the proof of that is that there is a hell, that everybody does not go to heaven. So we know that somebody's going there, somebody rejects Christ, and they're at some point, that's a problem. We've seen examples with Judah. We've seen examples uh, in, in or Judas um, of people hearing and yet not believing. We've seen the demons. Well, verse 7 and eight reminds us then in a, in a picture that you could be totally exposed to the rain, totally exposed to, exposed to God's truth, and yet yield no fruit. So if there's no fruit, then we can safely say that you're not in Christ. Well, a great passage for us to understand then is 
because we want to know the why. We want it. We 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 so want everybody to be saved. What we see in Hebrews ten, uh, verse twenty six. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So we do know that there is a consequence for willful, sinful disobedience. Sadly, but true. Uh, Verse 9, But, beloved, but, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. I love that God does this. God will, he will cut it to you straight. He will look you square in the eyes and say, you are a no good, sinful, rebellious, terrible child, but I love you. And and, and let me elaborate on that. Let, Let me tell you how much I love you because with me, it's not just words. I I. I love that he does this because, again, it's one of those deals where, and this is the worst part of the modern church because in the modern church today, everybody's forgiven. Everybody's going to hell. doesn't matter what you do, what you say. It's, it's just all going to be this one big giant party. It completely diminishes then what Christ has done on the cross. It completely diminishes the, the love and the care and, and the, the mercy that God has for you. Because there are a bunch that are going to reject God and go to hell. And so our response then, when we understand God's love and kindness for us, should be just this unbelievable awe and, and love and response from us. But now it's just kind of like, eh. It'd be, it, it's no different than the man who would go out and collect debt after debt after debt after debt. And everybody around would say, ah, don't worry about it. Ah, don't you have to pay me back. No, we'll, we'll cover you. Here's another credit card. Here's another one. Here's another one. What does he do? He just keeps on loading it up, right? And he's not even thankful any longer for all the debts that have been forgiven of him. First time, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. If you're really listening while you're reading, if you're really diving into this, there should be some concern and fear for yourself because you sit there and go, man, I have a lot of sin. I've done a lot of rejecting. I hope this isn't talking about me. Um, Or maybe you're thinking, well, why is it fair that everybody doesn't go go to heaven? And the question would be, is, is, is God not fair? Is God undressed? Is, is this plan of God's 
Is it not a righteous, good plan? And so the makes you makes you think. And then you ask the question, hey, it's coming off of the illustration of the, the, the ground that yields fruit, is is my fruit even noticed? Is it I mean does God see all the good stuff I do? And so, verse 11, and so we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Here's the problem. See, we, we want God to see all the good stuff that we do, but we want him to forget all the bad stuff, right? But we definitely want him to see, and we, as much as we try to get away from it, we do have this sense of, scales of justice i've done way more good stuff than i have bad stuff won't won't god see that isn't he gonna see that yeah he sees it but look your full assurance isn't in that your hope isn't in that i hope it's not in that it shouldn't be in that and so now we see this this again this move towards the anchor of the soul because we still struggle we struggle with this idea of really getting what salvation is and really confusing it with my obedience to the law, my good deeds, the stuff I do, tying it in to my fruit. My fruit is, a, is an outpouring response, not a, a precursor to salvation. We think we go out and if, and if I produce a beautiful garden that God will see it and be happy with me and go, okay, you, you know, it's like at the, at the Puyallup Fair, right? Tony, you have the prize pumpkin. Come on into heaven. Welcome. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's completely in reverse. Because he saved me, because he loved me, I go out, I till the ground, I, uh, ground, I create a harvest, and, and he sees the fruit. But we're still caught up on see me, see me. See what I did? And so what we're going to push forward here now is now we look into the second key feature because the first one is a call to maturity and those things aren't mature. Those things are just still silly uh, religiosity tied into good works and, and, and look at me. What we really should, should key in on and what we should really anchor on is that God is unchangeable. That God has unchangeable promises. And if you really think about this, this is very odd. God wants me to, to be mature. He wants me to understand salvation. So the way he does that in this passage is to break this down into two things. A call to maturity and to prove and show he doesn't change. Hmm, that seems like an odd way to go about proving something. But follow me here. We see that there's a purpose. Verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, they, with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. 
Why? In order that by two unchangeable things in, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of hope set before us. So, the anchor of our soul, the anchor, what, what keeps us steady in one place without floating away is that God does not change. He doesn't change. You want to tie it into your, your, your garden, your fruit. He ties it into his faithfulness as an example. You know that guy, Abraham? Okay, I made some promises to Abraham. I told Abraham I would give him land, I would give him seed, and I would give him blessing, and I would do this forever. And you and I can go back and look and study this and go, he keeps his promises. God is faithful. I can trust this God, this God of the Bible. This I can trust. I can trust this Bible. This Bible is consistent. It doesn't change. It doesn't shift it's theology. We don't see God lying. We don't see God turning on his plan. And so when it comes time for you to flee for refuge, to put your hope into something, you're to say, you know what? Whatever this guy Abraham did, that's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That should be the same thing that comes out of your mouth. You know what? In the Old Testament, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have scriptures. All they knew is, we've heard of this guy Abraham and his kids, Isaac and Jacob. I follow that God. That's the God I follow. I put my faith, I put my anchor in this God, the God that makes promises to Abraham and keeps them. He doesn't change. He doesn't lie. That's fixed. I can rely on that. It doesn't float away. It's an anchor. Well, we move forward we see this hope this hope we have then as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast that's the idea and the con the whole concept of the anchor is something that's sure something that's steadfast it doesn't waver and one which enters within the veil to the one which enters into the veil again this is one of those just little lines that God drops in there. It's this pregnant word, the one who, who enters in the veil. Remember when Christ dies on the cross for our sins and the veil is torn. It's that amazing picture of the transition from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant of, of the tabernacle where there was separation between God and man because of sin. You could not dwell with God. You had to have a high priest who was the mediator. The high priest would go back to the Holy of Holies. He would go sprinkle the blood, make atonement for your sin, be the mediator. You were over here. You didn't even know what was going on, right? Jesus comes and goes, just like Wizard of Oz, and tears down the veil. Look, this is it. See, see how this works. And so then the anchor of our soul is placed in a hope that is sure, that is steadfast. Verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you think, 
if you just popped in and you just read Hebrews 6, you go, where does this come from? This is why context is so important. This is why when you sit down and you read the word, don't give it five minutes. Read, read, set aside an hour. Read Hebrews from start to finish so that you can feel the flow and be with the flow and understand, look, there's a meta-narrative. There's, there's, there's an argument that's trying to be placed here that Christ is better. He's better than everything. And right now we're talking about the high priest, which is a pretty big deal. Because the high priest was that, that man of the cloth who was supposed to be the one that mediates between God and you. He's the one who brings the sacrifice before God. And you know what? You don't need that anymore. And as much as we like to say in the New Testament church, oh, yeah, 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 I, we get, we're not Jewish. I, I know. This is the whole tie up with, with the Catholics which really is, is crazy because you think, hey, guys, you know you use the same terms as the Old Testament, right? Priests, mediators. I mean, you got to go and sit in a little booth and pray to the priest. Why? Because you're not worthy because there is a veil between you and God. So you got to pray to the priest so that he, being the holier, more righteous person than you, can pray to God. That violates the whole purpose of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and the whole point of the new covenant. You have a new covenant. The Spirit resides in you. The, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have direct relationship. You don't need a mediator. You don't need me. You don't need me. And, and I hope and I pray that you would never put your confidence yeah. <laughs> Too many amens for that. But I will be the first to amen that. And I mean that in all sincerity. I am not your anchor by any means at all. Your anchor is God. Your anchor is God's word. Your anchor is in your hope in Jesus Christ. And when you start putting your, your hope in other things, then that's when we start wrangling about elementary things that are silly. Whose denomination, right? Which Bible guy's book is better than the other guy's? And um, we, we have one book. I've, I've spent a lot of time reading this book. And the more I read it, the more it speaks to me. The more I discover. I've never remember seeing this phrase, anchor of the soul. And I... I've read Hebrews 7, I don't know how many times. And it is so encouraging that I can come, and as we're just going through Hebrews, right? And, and I'm just reading through, trying to stay a couple chapters ahead too, and I come to this phrase, and it just, just invigorates my soul again. And it just encourages me personally, on a personal note, to say, I have an anchor to my soul. What a phrase. What a phrase. I've never heard it before. Uh, you know, I'm surprised because, you know, you would think one of these guys would go, that's a book. I'm going to write a book on that, right? Read Hebrews. There, there's your book. And so, once again, we see kind of this rabbit trail. You think it's a rabbit trail, 
But but God comes right back to it, wrangles us right back in. Verse 20, wrangles us back into this kind of this, I'm the high priest of Melchizedek, and we're going to continue and, and, and talk more about that in Hebrews 7. But the anchor of our soul is Christ. It's, it's, it's not Abraham. It's not Moses. It's not the law. Old Testament. It's not the law. It's not your knowledge or your participation. It's not even having confidence in like, you know, the, the legends of the faith. You know, we see in Hebrews 11, we're going to see that the heroes of the faith. No, the, the anchor is, is our hope in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for our sins. And we get to celebrate that and be reminded of that with communion. And so as I close and ask Arden to come up as we prepare our hearts for, for communion. Lord.